0: Be seated. Good morning, family. (coughs) Well, if you've been feeling down and out lately, then this is the psalm you need to hear this morning. So let's turn to Psalm 92. How great are your works, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, almost high, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work and the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Paul Morgan, will you come and pray over us, please?
1: Let's bow for prayer. Father, in these brief few seconds of silence, we reflect upon the reality that we need you. That we need you today in this time of worship in order to worship you rightly. For our hearts turn towards self, and our thoughts are often led astray by distractions. I pray, Lord God, that today you give us that help, that as we hear your word read, and as we hear your word preached, that our hearts would be attentive to the Spirit of God within us, and those of us who yet do not have the Spirit of God within us, that you, Lord God, would quicken their hearts, and grant them salvation. We are a people, Lord, who have no hope apart from you. All of us, everyone, regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of our wealth, regardless of our poverty, regardless of any circumstances that we have gained a claim for or anything that we've suffered, you, Lord God, are our only hope. In life and death, there is no hope apart from you. And so we come before you, Lord God, asking once again for your mercy and your grace, completely acknowledging our total dependence upon you. Because you are God and we are not. You are the creator of all things and you are altogether good. In you, there is nothing but good. From our eyes, we often do not see that. And we, your creatures, act as though we are judges of you. When it is you, Lord God, who judge all things. And by the word of your power, are the only true God. Master and creator, sovereign over all. And so we repent, Lord God, of our arrogance. In thinking that we are more than we are but we rejoice also in the fact that you have created us in your image and so that we are much more than we even think. I pray, Lord God, that you be honored and glorified by every word spoken, by every thought offered and by the reading of your word and the singing of these songs. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray.
2: Amen. Please join me. Lord Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are above all. You control all. You are the light of the world. And Lord, you have healed many in this congregation. You're healing many more. Pray for Ann and for Jenny and for Sharon and as they see their healing Comfort them, Lord, for each person here, Lord God, that is having a hard time walking or standing or sleeping. Lord God, I pray you'd strengthen their spirit. Mm-hmm. That through that, Lord God, we would consider it all joy when we go through these trials. I don't know how do we do that, Lord, but I just pray we would. That we would consider it joy. That we have you standing before us above everything. And, Lord, I do ask and thank you for the healing that you have done for Dan. I thank you for the healing that you're doing right now. But for those who are, we don't want to see anyone go, Lord, but we know at the end we will be with you. It's a point of time for us to live and a point of time for us to die. We don't like that part, Lord, but we want to be with you. So be with us, Lord, now that we hear the word that we hear from you, Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. Please be seated.
3: Well, good morning, EBC. It is a privilege to be with you again this morning as we have come together corporately to worship our God in spirit and in truth as we pray the word, read the word, sing the word, and now hear the word of God preached. Because this is, in fact, an act of worship, uh, both on your part and mine. My preparation throughout the week for each sermon is an act of worship. And my delivery of a sermon to you is also an act of worship to God on my part. And it is likewise an act of worship on your part as you sit and hear and contemplate and examine and digest the word of God being preached. And I don't say that for any reason other than I just felt like saying it. It's not a rebuke to anyone or anything like that. And in fact, I'm actually really encouraged by the amount of people that I see taking notes or I can tell are actively and attentively listening. But if you do happen to fall asleep while I am preaching, well, then sleep is a wonderful gift of God, and I am happy that I can help in that gift giving. But in all seriousness, I just felt like mentioning that just as a reminder to us all that this portion of our worship service, the preaching of the word of God, is an act of worship in which we all have our duties and responsibilities before God, not just the preacher. And theologically, we refer to preaching as one of the ordinary means of grace meaning this is one way in in which God imparts graces unto his people as they hear the word of God being preached. So there is good and blessing in it for us all. So let us then proceed in this act of worship. And so we began our new series last week titled, Who is God? with the aim and purpose at really taking a deep dive into the Scriptures to examine who God is as He has revealed Himself. Because there are many man-made gods in the world, but even worse and more dangerous is that there are many man-made traditions of who God is and what God is like, even amongst those who profess the God of the Bible. And as Christians, unlike the culture that we live in today, we have a responsibility to the truth. We have a responsibility as honest seekers of truth, and especially so when it comes to our understanding of who God is. Because, beloved, everything else flows from that. Your understanding of God, your theology, of the doctrine of God imparts every aspect or impacts every aspect of your lives, whether you realize it or not. And so it is my desire as one of your pastors to equip you with a correct knowledge if you don't already have it or to encourage you with it again if you already do. We serve a majestic, mighty, and merciful God. And he has communicated many truths to us that are good for our souls. Why wouldn't we want to know him rightly? And let me give you one quick answer to that question that I want you to be challenged by, not today specifically, but throughout this entire series perhaps. And I pose it to you from experience. Why would we not want to know God as he has revealed himself? Because of our pride i have been there i have held on to incorrect perceptions of god or incorrect traditions even after being presented with truth because of my pride but by the grace of god he has humbled me many times and has brought me to points in my life where he has overwhelmed me with a sense of his glory as he has brought me to solid. And it is a powerful thing to behold God rightly. And it is a beautiful thing. And so on the flip side of that, because you have a responsibility to the truth, you should always examine everything that is said from this pulpit, from any pulpit you sit under, from any book you read or any TV preacher or radio preacher you might listen to, Examine everything in light of the Scriptures. Make sure all of your theology is informed by them. And with that, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word with me to Acts chapter 17, as we consider the eternality and immutability of God this morning. Acts chapter 17, and that's page 1100 in your pew Bible. And if you are a visitor this morning and you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to feel free to keep that Pew Bible as our gift to you. There are also some welcome notepads near the entrance that you can take, and there's an information card in there you can fill out and slip into the offering box. We would love the opportunity to reach out and follow up with you. Acts 17. Last week we began this series, and we began by looking at the assayity of god that is that god is self-existent he is the uncaused cause of all things that have come into being he exists necessarily and he is also self-sufficient he does not need anything outside of himself he is perfectly sufficient within himself by necessity because he is god And we saw this truth in Acts 17 as Paul is addressing the people of Athens at Mars Hill, that being the supreme court of Athens, or the court of the philosophers. And another interesting fact about Mars Hill, in Greek mythology, it was a court of the gods. Again, Mars is the Roman counterpart of Ares, so Mars Hill is the hill of Ares, the god of war. And this is his hill. Because in Greek mythology, it is depicted as the court in which Ares stood stood trial before the gods for the murder of Poseidon's son. Additionally, standing on this hill, and to this day, you have a clear view of the Acropolis, which is parallel to it, which is where the Parthenon sits. At this time, it being the temple dedicated to the Greek goddess Athena. Goddess of War. So, Paul, standing in the courtroom of the gods on the hill of the god of war, in sight of the temple of the goddess of war, now makes war against the cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places which held Athens in chains and begins to destroy arguments and lofty opinions. Against the knowledge of God to take every thought captive to Christ. As he heralds the truth of the one and only God of the world. And these truths cut to the heart of the human experience. And that was his purpose. That was Paul's purpose in sharing these truths. That it would cut to the hearts of these superstitiously religious Athenians, that they would receive the gospel. And so he begins by trying to humble them before he gives them grace. And he appeals to natural revelation because there are certain truths in particular that God has sanctioned as means to bring about correct perspectives in human beings in relation to himself. To remind us that He and He alone is God. And anything else besides is mythology. And it is entertaining fiction at best. Damning fables at worst. If you're not familiar with the term natural revelation. In theology we speak of two kinds of revelation from God. Natural and special revelation. Natural revelation is God revealing aspects of Himself through the created order. Special revelation is God directly revealing specific facts through direct means of communication with His people, things that would otherwise not be known. And so the plan of redemption is communicated through prophets, through Christ, through the apostles, and is recorded in our scriptures. That is all special revelation. But now... Let's begin by reading our text for this morning, Acts chapter 17, verses 22 and 31, as we take a look and see how Paul appeals to natural revelation. And so beginning in verse 22, we read where God's inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word which he has spoken to us here through the pen of fluke reads, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's pray. Father, preaching is an act of worship. And listening to preaching is an act of worship. But Father, this act can mean nothing unless it is empowered by you. And so Father, we beg you Your spirit would be at work in this room. Father, we utter the prayer of our Lord. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify us, God. Make us more and more like Christ. Hide your word in our hearts that we may not sin against you. Help us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the opening sentences of St. Augustine's confessions, which he began to write in or around the year 397, while in his early 40s, Augustine articulates a very profound biblical truth when he writes, quote, You, God, have made us for yourselves, and restless is our heart until it comes to rest in you. Quote. In that, he strikes at the heart of a common human experience the need to worship. We are all created to worship God, but in our sin, Romans 1 would teach us that we suppress the truth of God in varying degrees. But as humans the need to worship is a very part of our fabric. And so why do we see so many different religions in the world? Why do places like India have hundreds or hundreds of thousands of gods? Because we are made to worship. Why did these Athenians have hundreds of gods to include an altar to the unknown god? Because they were made To worship. Listen to how Romans 1 verses 18 through 23 puts it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, into things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. But listen carefully again to verse 20. Romans one twenty. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. His eternal power and divine nature. What this tells us is that natural revelation creation the skies the seas the sun the moon the stars mount rainier you all of creation is purposed to reveal god's invisible attributes specifically his eternal power and divine nature creation itself is the agent That proves correct the philosophy that we spoke about last week. That Paul is appealing to in this text. It is sound reasoning and logic. If anything exists, then God exists necessarily. God's aseity, that is part of his divine nature, and creation, right, shouts that truth. But creation also reveals that God is eternal And immutable. That is another aspect of natural revelation that Paul appeals to as he proclaims God's truths. So notice now the eternality and the immutability of God as we continue to follow along in Paul's attempt to point these Athenians to the one true God. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Now stop right there. Yet again, Paul is swinging the sword of truth against the Epicurean philosophy that said that anything and everything came into being by accident. He proclaims that God made from one man every nation. Right? It was no accident. It was designed. But additionally, what Paul is communicating in that verse is the eternality of God and by connection, the immutability of God. But let's consider the eternality of God first. Paul says that it was God who determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of our dwelling place. Now, what does he mean by that? First, he strikes at their Athenian pride by telling them that all mankind came from one man, because Athenians were a proud people. In fact, to them, uh, you were either a Greek or a barbarian. But now he strikes at their autonomy, and by that I mean their perceived freedom from the Creator God. Epicurus himself said that the gods have no influence in our lives. And the academic skeptics present that day would have thought the same thing. Those who believe that all of creation is by accident think that they are in charge. They are their own gods, in a sense. Psalm 10, verse 4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And what Paul is communicating to these Athenians is that not only did they come from one man and all nations from one man by the sovereign decree of God, but their very lives, their very days, every moment of their lives has been determined and numbered by God. And to the philosophers standing there, the bells that had to go off in their heads were allotted periods. Time is determined how could that be does this mean that the future is already known how could that be and even in our current day this is a question in many people's hearts is the future set does god know exactly what tomorrow holds and friends there are some dangerous heresies out there today there are those who profess christianity who are proponents of a heresy called open theism open theism which says that god does not know the future and instead he reacts and arranges things and works in the present to move things around as they happen god learns and makes decisions that are dependent on our actions That is a blasphemous heresy. And so what Paul is telling these Athenians is your days are numbered. This is out of your control. You belong to God. He is your maker and your master. Job 14.5 says of man that, quote, his days are determined and the number of his months is with you. And you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. And that language in Job of appointed limits uh, kind of sounds like appointed boundaries of their dwelling place that Paul is using here. Now, Job is specifically using his language to refer to time. And in my study of this text and Acts, I found that a majority of commentators see that part of boundaries and their dwelling place as speaking specifically about where people are born, or speaking of the nations and their borders, uh, showing that God is in control of all that to include wars and times when nations rise and fall and the extent or not of their borders, and all those things are true. But I think it can also rightfully go even deeper than that. Because Paul is clearly appealing to natural revelation to make God known. He is using natural revelation to bring forth the truth that, that creation proclaimed. God's divine nature and eternal power. And so I think Paul is also speaking to the confinement of time. We dwell in time. Our limits have been set, as, jo, as Job puts it. Our boundary is in time, and it is a means by which God appeals to us to show us that we are finite beings and therefore there must be an infinite eternal creator. Ecclesiastes 3:11 God has put eternity into men's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has put eternity In our hearts, meaning that we instinctively know that our days are numbered. And that points us to the knowledge of the eternal nature and power of God. But even then, again, listen to what Ecclesiastes says yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Which again shows us how small and finite we are. Our days are numbered and so short that none of us have even a shred of sufficient capacity to find out all that God has done from the beginning of the world till now, and much less from the beginning all the way to the end. So what Paul is really saying is God alone is from everlasting to everlasting. Here's another interesting theological truth. We are bound in time. Our dwelling place is in time. We have a catechism question that we ask the kids, where is God? To which they reply, "Everywhere." I bring this up because I had also thought about asking them an additional one after that, but at their age, I thought it might actually confuse them, so I didn't. But here it is. I saved it just for you. Where does God live? Where does God well, and i'll give you a hint heaven is not the answer i'm looking for where does god dwell <clears throat> isaiah 57 15 isaiah 57 15 the one who is high and lifted up inhabits eternity and in that same verse god then speaks and says I dwell in the high and holy place. But how are we to understand that and think about that? Did God create a high and holy place in which he wasn't living in before creation? If a high and holy place is a place? I think this is how we are to understand this. Stephen Sharnock An English pastor in the 1600s once said, God is his own eternity. That is to say, eternity is not a thing. It is not something that exists outside of God. It is not measured in time because it is before time in creation. Now again, we are getting into a little deep philosophy here. So please bear with me. But please try and follow along because these are just some amazing truths about God. We really won't even get too deep in the argumentation here. But if you do want some further study and a headache, uh, you could pick up Augustine's Confessions and read book 11, which is really just like a chapter 11 of the book. But it's called book 11. And it's a whole section devoted to this from a philosophical view. And it's kind of funny too, actually. Uh, it's It really follows along as he writes out his own thoughts, and it's all about this topic. And so, for example, he asks, what is time? To which he replies, I know what time is, but if someone asks me what time is, I don't know. And then a few pages later, still talking about what time is, he writes, I admit. I still don't know what time is. On the other hand, I know I'm saying all this stuff within time, and that I've all, and that, and that I've already spent quite a while speaking about time, and that this thing itself that I call quite a while isn't quite a while except as an interval of time. So, like I said, if you want a headache, uh, just go read that. But he ends the chapter with this: Whoever understands. Let him testify to you. And whoever does not understand, let him testify to you also. Oh, how exalted you are. So, whether you understand what we're getting into here or not, you should worship him because he is the eternal God. Here's what I want to share with you. A few things that we as Christians should affirm when we speak of God's eternality. Three things. Number one, he is without beginning or end. And this sounds like what we spoke about last week, his aseity. And there are some similarities. But one theologian put it this way, quote, God's eternity is his aseity in relation to to time," close quote. So satiety and eternality start to sound the same here but have some differences, right? So his eternality is his self-existence and self-sufficiency as it relates to time. There is no point in time in which God ever came into existence. And neither will he ever cease to be. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth. Wherever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Psalm 93 verse 2. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Job 36 verses 26 and 27. Behold God is great. And we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. So he is without beginning or end. Number two. He is without succession. In his being. Let me repeat that. He is without succession. In his being. Meaning. That. His entire beingness is simultaneous. There is no past, present, or future in terms of time in the being of God. Sharnock puts it this way God possesses his being in one indivisible point. And others have articulated that God lives in a state of eternity present. Augustine stated, stated it like this, You, God, don't precede time by means of time. Otherwise, you wouldn't proceed all time. Rather, you precede everything that is past through a transcendent state of the eternity that is always present. Close quote. The 1800s theologian Charles Hodge said it like this, with God, there is no distinction between the present, past, and future, but all things are equally and always present to Him. With Him, duration is an eternal now, Close quote. And so, we are told in Psalm 90, verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but, are but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. A thousand years is like a day to the Lord. This is what we are speaking of when I say there is no succession in God. A thousand years is like a day to the Lord. But the Apostle Peter expands on that and tells us that the opposite of that is also true. 2 Peter 3.8. 2 Peter 3.8. Paul, I mean, Peter writes... With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now how can both be true? How can a thousand years be like one day, and one day be like a thousand years to God at the same time? Because He dwells in eternity. In a state of eternal presence. Eternal now, without succession. He has been before time ever came to be. But He is the Lord of time. Time is His creation, and He is able to work in time as He pleases. And number three, this is a necessarily included attribute of God's eternality. Because God is eternal, He is therefore immutable. And that God is immutable simply means that He is unchanging. He does not change in respect to His essence, His attributes, His nature, His perfection. God does not change in His being. He eternally has been and will be what He is now. And as we continue in the series... We will discuss that further, as I know that that statement raises more questions that we don't have time to consider today. And let me just say, please feel free not to wait, and come and ask me. Go and ask any of your elders, if you have these questions. Have conversations amongst yourselves. Get to know and understand This eternal and immutable God that we serve. But again, He is immutable. Malachi 3.6 I, the Lord, do not change. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is a necessary element. Of the eternal and perfect being of God. Back to Acts 17. God determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, right? So God is eternal and immutable. And He has written eternity in our hearts. Then verse 27. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him that is why eternity is written in our hearts that is why creation makes known his invisible attributes in divine nature to draw us to god but here's the flip side of that to those that refuse to repent and believe to bow the knee to the lordship of christ natural revelation is enough to make them accountable to the truth that god exists and that God is God. Romans 1.20 again, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. This, beloved, is why we can theologically say that there is no such thing as a real atheist. Because eternity is written in all of our hearts. And creation reveals God to us plainly. Those of us who profess or like myself have have professed atheism in the past. Merely suppress the truth of God in our unrighteousness. And that is why Paul chose to share these truths with the Epicurean, Stoic, and academic skeptics on that day at Mars hill and so he then warns them and calls them to repentance verses 30 and 31 the times of ignorance got overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead friends if you are here today and have not surrendered yourself to this eternal immortal and sovereign God then you must be made aware must be made aware that a day has been appointed a day in which you will stand before him without excuse because he has displayed his, his eternal power and divine nature to you every single day of your life. But there is hope. This immutable, eternal king is a good and gracious master. And there is none that is more so than he. And he offers you the free gift of everlasting life if you repent and believe and put your trust in Christ. The man, of whom verse 31 says, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. and for you believer For those of you who are already born again I want to close with this bit of encouragement Job 14:1 says man who is born of woman is few in days and full of trouble And no that's not the encouraging part <clears throat> But we know that don't we We live that Life is hard Or it will be hard, or it will get easier, and then it will get harder, and back and forth, and back and forth, and so forth. Our circumstances change. Our afflictions change and come and go, and our days are short. We are finite creatures. We dwell in time and space. But here's another place that we as believers live in. We dwell in the eternal God. And I actually want you to see this with me as we close. So turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy and go to Deuteronomy chapter thirty three and look at verses twenty six and twenty seven. Deuteronomy 33, verses 26 and 27. There is none like like God, O Yeshurun, which literally means upright one. So there is none like God, O upright one, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in His majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. The eternal God, this eternal, immutable God, is your refuge, believer. There is no one else like Him. There is nothing else like Him. There is no greater need in your life than Him. Psalm 103:17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4, you keep him in perfect peace, those whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Why do we ever run to anything else besides him to try to find rest for our hearts? He alone is the I am, not the I was or I will be, he is the I am unchangeable perfect in all of his ways and he is our dwelling place as christians Psalm 102 25 of old you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish but you will remain they will wear out like garment You change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same. And your years have no end. This is our God beloved. Isn't it amazing? That he has chosen to enter into his creation. And be intimately acquainted with his people. And be our dwelling place. This is is the eternal God of the universe. And I want to close this two-part sermon by reading just the fourth stanza of the hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns, which reads, Crown Him, the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, Ineffably sublime, all hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. May that be the song of our hearts, hearts that have found rest. In the Lord of years, the potentate of time. Let's pray. Father, we are so unlike you. You are from everlasting to everlasting, and we are but finite created beings but God you chose to make yourself known to us and in our sin we rebelled but Father in your grace and mercy you created a plan a plan that is unchanging a plan that is eternal as you are eternal and has a foundation that is eternal. Christ died for sinners. We thank you for that truth that will never change. Lord, would you write it upon our hearts as you have written eternity on them. That we would all in this room find rest in you. In Jesus' name.